It's Friday, November 22nd. From the Ryersonian, I'm Karen Sandoval-Santana. And I'm Charlie Buckley. You're You're listening listening to to Blue and Gold. Gold. In the early 1960s, Ryerson was looking to expand its facilities. Ryerson Hall, originally the site of the Toronto Normal School, was too small and too old to accommodate the institution's growing populace. The building was said to be demolished by 1963 to make room for the brand new Kerr Hall. The only problem? Somewhere hidden in the school's walls was a time capsule dating back to 1852, when the building was first constructed. The location of the treasure had been lost to time in the centuries since it was laid and the clock was ticking to dig it up. This week, in a special edition of Blue and Gold, we take a look at a decades-old mystery that eludes Ryerson students, namely us, to this day. Ben, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. So, you and I had a lot of fun this week working on this little investigation of ours. Uh, Can you take me back? When did we really first start talking about it? Oh, it had to be sometime last year. You would just go on and on every day about this this treasure that's buried somewhere and it's worth tens of thousands of dollars. I, I'd actually like to boomerang that question and ask you, how did you first hear about it? In second year, I was working on a feature story about Ryerson's mascots. So now we have the guy in the suit, but back in the day, from like 1961 all the way up to 1991, we had actual sheep that would come to sports games and all that. And when I was doing the research, because I was trying to track down where their taxidermied heads ended up, they used to have them at the campus bar. These days they're in the archives. While I was looking for that, I came across this book written by a Ryerson graduate, Mr. John Downing, one of the founding members of the Toronto Sun. And it is just such a wealth of weird stories from our school's history and among those I found the story of buried treasure. That would have been uh, Ryerson University, A Unicorn Among Horses. That is correct, yes. It's a good book. So why don't we just do a quick recap now. You and I started this search just after reading week this semester. What did we do? We didn't do as much as we wanted to. I, I remember initially we had these lofty goals. We wanted to get some uh, architecture students and profs involved. We wanted to get some imaging technology to peer through some of the, uh, some of the layers of, of the university, try to find the treasure, but that didn't end up materializing. Instead, we dug up architectural drawings from way back when, would have been 1850s, of the design of the Toronto Normal School, which ended up being, becoming Ryerson University. That was, a, that was a good time. Remember we had to put on gloves to sift through those? Yeah, and then we also sifted, well, I mean, th- this was me and actually our managing editor, Juliana Perkins, but we went to the Ryerson archives and dug through old copies of the Ryersonian and amongst headlines like Castro's Cuba. There's just stuff talking about stylish treasure hunters going into the crawl space under the school looking for actual treasure. And you had to dig through the star library, didn't you? Yes, I I went to the reference library and with the help of some people that know far more about that kind of thing than me, I found the two or three headlines from 1962 talking about wacky Ryerson students up to no good. Mm. And then, of course, there was Mining Our Bible, Ryerson University, A Unicorn Among Horses. Of course. For more information. And speaking with the man himself, (laughs) I spent a solid 45 minutes speaking with John Downing who is just a, a wealth of information about Ryerson University and, and, and other things in general. What is a very 
very intelligent, very capable man. Well, initially he didn't know what we were talking about. I think that's because I used a bit of a misnomer. I said buried treasure, where this is more like forgotten about treasure <laughs> sucked somewhere in some wall. Because we emailed him, we said we'd like to follow up about a story you wrote about concerning buried treasure. And he, he sent said, back, uh, I've written 6,000 columns, 3,000 editorials, several books, but nothing about buried treasure. And then call me and just his number. Yeah, no. Is that so, a story? What a career. He's one of the he's one of the day one folks of the Toronto Sun. He's a columnist. Is right when it opened. So we've been talking a bit about our personal journey, but I think our our listeners probably want to get a good through line of an idea of what the story actually is. Of course, there's our uh, print version of this, which is viewable in the newspaper this month. But can you give us a quick rundown? Of- sure, sure. I, and and uh, you know you know the story a lot better than I do, so please fill in any gaps. So in 1851, they're building the Toronto Normal School, and that's headed by Egerton Ryerson. And uh, for some reason or another, I never got too clear of a picture of the motivation. They decide to put in what we believe to be some rare stamps and coins uh, in a box and stick it in one of the stones. And then they didn't mark down where it was for some reason. So you're, you're almost there. When they were building the school, which was going to be like the teachers' college for for uh, Upper Canada and, and, and here in um, here in Toronto, the the cornerstone, like the first brick, they decided to make it into like a little time capsule. So you're right, there were there were coins and there were stamps. There's also like a bunch of legal documents and and and, and some personal writings from uh, Egerton from Egerton himself. Ryerson, yeah, and. It's not, like, completely unique to Ryerson. Like, Maple Leaf Gardens, for example, when they were renovating it into our athletic center now, um, a couple years ago, they opened up, they had another one. Like, when they built Maple Leaf Gardens back in 1931, one of the things was empty, and there was, like, an NHL rule book in there and a tiny ivory elephant that had been carved, and the CBC described it as of mysterious origin. Right, I read about that in our story. Yeah, how about that? (laughs) Yeah, they they just had this little treasure with like a bronze plaque on it that said, "On this day in 1852, the Governor General of Canada, Lord some such, laid this stone and started building the school." Mm-hmm. And then, sometime in the hundred years after that, the plaque was no longer on the stone, and they couldn't tell which one was which. Well, there's a lot of construction and deconstruction and renovations yeah. and all that. They lose track of where the stone is. Some people say that the stone has been moved from one part of the building to another, which sounds very incorrect. Like, why would you take out a big brick from a wall and move it? But, I mean, it's all kind of a big mystery. Mm-hmm. And then they, they made additions to the building over the 100 years. Like, certain areas were newer than others. And on top of all of that, the rumor was that the actual landscaping, like the earth, had been raised up since they first built the school, which would mean that if the cornerstone, which is traditionally at the ground level where your feet are, at the front of the building is now underground and so who knows where it could be and then what john downing told you and what we've read in his his book as well as ryersonian articles from the time and and stuff from the star is that it became like a yearly tradition Mm -hmm. to go hunting for the treasure there are there's some good theories about what happened to it uh that surfaced during the i guess the treasure renaissance when it was rediscovered back in the 60s uh one is that workmen just took it Uh, which makes sense. Apparently, they were told, and this is not standard, that they wouldn't be allowed to take any valuables, uh, which is weird. If you hear that, you're just 
breaking down an old building, building up a new one. You can't take anything. So that uh, leads someone working on the building to think, hey, maybe there's something valuable in one of these bricks. So that's possible. That's one of the theories. Uh, do you remember any others? I mean, there's our, there's my personal pet theory, which I had been kind of hoping to find evidence of while we were looking at the architectural drawings and while we were trying to conduct our own search. So for those students and community members listening right now who are trying to kind of wrap their head around where this building was, it's at the current site of Kerr Hall. The normal school was too small for Ryerson's growing population, and it was also, like a lot of Ryerson's buildings at the time, kind of a death trap. And so they knocked it down and then built up Kerr Hall, the kind of donut of a building, around where it was, and the Kerr Hall quad is where the main building was. And the one section they didn't knock down was the front archway, the two-story facade that is still there today and serves as the entrance to the Ryerson Athletic Center. And my theory is the reason why no one ever found it is because it's in that little arch and it was just never broken open, which is why I, I had hopes of you and I just taking a pickaxe to it. Well, if that were to happen... It wouldn't be us. We would never do something like that. No, of course. <laughs> so if that ever, if you ever see a report of something like that happening, it was someone else. <laughs> I, we definitely had an alibi at the time. Yeah. If, if that ever were. We don't want to radicalize any listeners either. <laughs> go and do that themselves. But if someone were to do that, you can set up some sort of anonymous email and just let us know whether or not the treasure's there. Because that's, that's what's most important. So taking away from inspiring uh, vandalism and crime for heritage buildings in, here in downtown Toronto, when you talk about other theories, John Downing, when you talk to him, he had some as well, didn't he? Well, yeah. I mean, I think his he, he believes, as Howard Kerr believed, apparently Kerr went to his grave thinking that the workmen stole it. And I, I think that's Downing's main theory. But we'll hear more from him later on in the, in the program. Mm. We spoke at length about some of his time at Ryerson. He was the he was a journalism student, and he was the student body president. And apparently he got into a lot of tiffs with uh, with Howard Kerr, who was the dean at the time. With, For whom Kerr Hall is named. Uh, oh, yes, the eponymous Kerr of Kerr Hall. I bring it up partially because the story goes that after like the late 50s, early 60s, when they announced they were going to be knocking down the normal school, and a couple of students were starting to kind of say, well, hey, what about this treasure that's legendarily supposed to be here? And the yearly treasure hunt started. Kerr was strongly, strongly against it. He was, yeah. He was against a lot of things. I don't think Downing got along with him very well. Uh, apparently, the treasure hunt was banned at, at, uh, at one point, at least, possibly for, for its entirety. I, I don't, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, students were under threat of expulsion if they got caught searching for this thing. Well, I mean, it's not super surprising now, is it? I mean, some of the articles from the Sonian we read, it's like teams of three people sneaking into a musty crawl space underneath the school with no light where it's like a foot and a half big crawling on their stomachs. Like, that's that's the beginning of a liability lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, I see both sides of it. You don't want your students getting hurt, you know, but... Uh... Also, come on, that's pretty lame. You know. <laughs> Someone wanted to stop me from treasure hunting. I'd be upset about it. And so I think we've already let the cat out of the bag. It was never found, not even today. But there was a glimmer of hope, if you remember. I believe it was 1962. They had... I don't, actually. No? I'm a 90s baby. I'm a... <laughs> okay. 
They had a team of treasure hunters who they, they went to the reference library, as I, I did 60 years later, and, and they found some of the architectural drawings that you and I have then later looked at, and then also some some Department of Public Works stuff. And they said they they had it to a certainty. They knew exactly where it was. And they even like said that they had been to the site of where the brick probably was and had like put their hand on it and said, it's right here, it's in here. And then a year later, the, the only next mention of the cornerstone is the very last search has come up empty. We're knocking on the building tomorrow. Sorry. Well, I mean, if they if they found it, you know, why didn't they do something to open it up? Maybe. Unless they did. <laughs> we were we were joking with about this, and obviously we'd never do it because it's very unethical. But there's a rumored, and uh, Downing tries to dispute this because who knows how the number came up. But there's rumored to be eighty five thousand dollars in today's money there. So uh, you know we don't get paid to work at the Ryersonian. This could be our compensation if we were to find it. A dilemma occurs. I mean, do we even tell anyone? So maybe that happened. Maybe maybe someone else didn't have the scruples we did. So stay tuned sometime soon for another article about the conspiracy around stealing the buried treasure. Well, someone, someone might have done it. Is there anything else you want to share before we transition into hearing straight from the unicorn among horses' mouth? You're welcome for the, the to the listeners <laughs> for the privilege of uh, hearing Mr. Downing. Thanks for joining us, Ben. No problem. Thank you for having me. Hey, uh, is this a good time to call? This is Ben from the Ryersonian. You, you know what I'm talking about when I said the uh, $10,000 cornerstone, right? I know about the cornerstone, the mystery that Ryerson has never solved. There doesn't seem to be a lot of mystery back in, in 1851 when they when they um, put together the cornerstone. It was all straightforward, and it was a great uh, event, and everybody came, and Edgerton Ryerson had enemies in the community, but he also had friends, and it had all seemed like a good idea. So no one ever thought to mark down where they actually put the bloody cornerstone. You would assume that it would be just around the door of the facade that you still have standing there. That would seem to be the logical place. You would think at the corner of the building or at the corner of the entrance to the main part of the building. Yeah, that's, that's my assumption, at least. But it just kind of disappeared into the mist. Mm-hmm. And what complicates things is that um, the guy, the, the two people, I think they were called Cumberland and Storm, well, they had all the business that they could handle. I mean, they were plugged in, I guess, to the family compact, and, and they were making money hand over fist. And I think one of them was designing a, a railroad to run up to Georgian Bay and so on. So there really wasn't much interest in saving the, finding the cornerstone or saving the old building. So basically the cornerstone went missing out of neglect and uh, carelessness, and some of the carelessness was delivered. Uh, you mentioned, I uh, believe in your book, that uh, Howard Kerr went to his grave believing the treasure was carried off by uh, demolition workers? Well, at, at the last moment, they, somebody got the bright idea of telling the workmen that they couldn't uh, 
couldn't save, uh, couldn't take anything that they actually found of value. And that really was added at the last, and it wasn't standard, mm-hmm. which would make you think that yeah. maybe maybe somebody figured out, maybe the, maybe the cornerstone has value. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to figure out what was in the cornerstone, because I, I don't think they listened to the last uh, penny. The problem when you and I sit here talking about it, stamps have lost a lot of their value. Uh, I mean, it used to be stamps was kind of a rich man's hobby. And I remember giving a speech in high school, winning a public speaking tournament, talking about how the king of Canada and England, King George VI, was a stamp collector. Well, I doubt if you've heard of anybody famous being a stamp collector in the last few years, because the whole bottom fell out of the stamp collecting market. Mm. So the stamps and coins that were in the cornerstone in 1851 probably would have been worth the 10000 that some student dreamed up. No one really knows. I mean, <laughs> I can see some guy sitting in his typewriter saying, you know, I'll bet you that was worth 10000 bucks. It just, I mean, I'm a newspaper guy. I know, I know how you do it. If no one objects, that's the figure you use. I would love to exaggerate the value of what was in the cornerstone because I love the history of, of the original Ryerson and I think uh, the university today should be really proud of its roots. Mm. And when you look at what, what they put in the cornerstone, they, Edgerton Ryerson put in a few of the speeches. <laughs> uh, I think the Ontario Arch- Archives would be interested in that. I've I was in the archives poking around about some of the stuff about the early Ryerson. I'm talking about, you know, after 1850 and before Ryerson started in 1948. And uh, there's not much there. If there, was, if there were coins in there, I don't pretend to know about uh, the value of old coins today. And, of course, you and I know that... Uh, a coin or a stamp is only worth what people are willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a collector's item, you, you it can be worth something if people really want it or not. But I think uh, saying that the problem with you and I trying to figure out the value of the cornerstones today is that the, the stuff I wrote about in the book and the stuff that was in the Ryersonian back when the students were crawling around in the basement. What a dirty, filthy place it was. It was looked like a dungeon. Can you tell me about that, actually? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In my history at Ryerson, I think I've been in every bloody corner that there was. Is that right? But the, the um, whoever made up the estimate of 10,000, if I remember the, the Ryerson story in the, in the newspaper, the Ryersonian itself, can't remember any calculation as to, to arrive at the $10,000 figure. Hmm. But that doesn't mean it wasn't true. It, it, the fact is, a lot a lot of people were not interested in the cornerstone, but they didn't want to screw up the construction of the new building. So you have, you have the old guys about to retire. H.H. Carr was being forced into retirement. And you have the Tories at Queen's Park, uh, Bill Davis, who was the premier, who was actually fairly good towards Ryerson. But 
the old cornerstone and the old building was down right at the bottom of their list of priorities. Mm-hmm. I, it would not surprise me at all if under the facade uh, that, that has been saved, that the, the cornerstone is still there somewhere. Well, the, tell me, tell me what it was like during, I guess, the the friend being a scramble uh, to find to find it back in the day. I guess when the when the Ryersonian writers were getting into it. The move to get rid of it, it doomed any search for the cornerstone. Hmm. It would have been nice if the students, the renegade students who, they were, they were told they couldn't do this, which of course just encouraged them. Oh yeah. So they would crawl around at night or in the evening, um, because Ryerson took on a different life at night because there was a huge night school. So you had all these people from downtown Toronto flooding into the to the buildings, and half half the buildings were old, and half of them were under construction. <laughs> it, was, it was quite a weird scene. Thank you so much for your help. I really okay. appreciate it. Thank Here. you for all your time. Okay. All right, take care. Have a good night now. It's Blue and Gold. I'm Charlie Buckley. Here's what else we're following this week. On Ryerson campus, the manager of Balzac's Cafe at the Image Arts Building says there's been a 10% drop in sales since the beginning of construction on Gould Street. This week, University President Mohamed Lashmi said that a variety of factors are leading to how long the construction is taking. In the meantime, students have complained about the level of noise at the popular study spot. Elsewhere in Toronto Centre, Marcella Zoya, better known as Chair Girl, has pled guilty to mischief endangering life. Earlier this year, Zoya was filmed throwing a chair off of a 45th floor balcony toward the Gardner Expressway. In the time since, she has been expelled from her dental hygienist training program and has, according to her lawyer, lost a lot of friends. Sources say the Crown is pursuing up to six months of jail time in the case. And finally, the latest out of the Tainted Water investigation profiles a contaminant present in municipal water systems across the country. Trihalomethanes, or THMs, are a byproduct of chlorine disinfection and are considered possible carcinogens by Health Canada. Reporters found exceedances of safety guidelines in towns across the country. The project has been undertaken by more than 100 journalists and features the work of more than a dozen Ryerson students. That's all this week for Blue and Gold. Join us next week for more of your community's top stories. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and the Ryerson School of Journalism. Our host is Karen Sandoval-Santana, executive producing by me, additional reporting by Ben Cohen, Evan Cherubini, and Cassandra Earle. Our editor-in-chief is Maria Seru, managing editor Juliana Perkins, instructors Peter Baco-George and H.G. Watson. Graphics by Aria DeLima and Sophie Diego. Special thanks to Angela Glover, Lindsay Hanna, Daniela Leru, and Gary Gould. Music this week provided by WeStar. My name is Charlie Buckley. Thanks for listening.